Welcome to the QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatan... God, I always get it wrong. I mean, supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine. Scams. This podcast is July 2009 and is going to be an update on the literature concerning acupuncture, chiropractic, and red yeast rice. Brought to you, as always, as a side project of Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Persiflazer's Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease Facts, Dogma, and Opinion, your uber-hyperlinked electronic guide available at pusware.com, where you will also find the Persiflazer's Puscast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases. See me accredited. To continue with my extra-long intro, as Thomas Jefferson said in a different context, ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. And so this podcast will contain evidence-based ridicule. References are on the show notes page, and old podcasts are there as well. And don't forget, since the world needs more Mark Chrislop, trademark, check out my writings on sciencebasedmedicine.org and Rubor Dolor Kalor Tumor, my infectious disease blog. Also, my son has a YouTube channel, same as the old boss, with his comedic stylings of videos. He wanted me to plug him, so check out my son. I'd like to make one thing perfectly clear in my best Nixonian manner. It has often been suggested that I think people who believe the nonsense that there are scams are stupid. I do not. It is the human condition to believe stupid things. Critical thinking is not our default position. You can have two Nobel Prizes and still come up with dumbass ideas. I have the irrational, stupid idea that these podcasts are helpful. No matter what your IQ or education, you can believe stupid things. We all do. That does not make the people who buy into these beliefs stupid. It is the concepts of most scams that are dumbass, and we all love to flock to the dumbass. The purpose of this podcast, of course, is to show why they are dumbass. This podcast is going to be an update on the literature. Every now and then I punch in key terms into PubMed and see if there's anything new and wonderful out there that I should read. Then I try and keep an eye on the big scams, chiro, naturopathy, acupuncture, and herbal therapy, to see what's up and see if there's anything I need to read in the medical literature and then review it for this podcast. The medical literature is not stagnant. Folks need to publish or perish, and the best way to publish, evidently, is to put out lots of less-than-thrilling papers. There is a big thing out there for scams and surveys, many articles that are how one defined population uses scams or another, the use of acupuncture in cancer patients, or the use of chiropractic in this population. There are innumerable case reports and small pilot studies, but few scam studies seem to make it to the big time. Real studies with controls. There are a few studies in scams that ever make it into the high-impact journal. And the NCCAM, for all the money it has spent, is not exactly noted for its flood of high-quality studies in high-impact journals like the New England Journal of Medicine or the Annals of Internal Medicine. It's probably GIGO, G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. However, there have been some articles published in reasonably good journals in the last several months, and they warrant a careful look-see. So we're going to look at two studies and a systemic review. What fun. Let's see now. Let's start with um, 
Yeah, like I use paper. Everything's on PDF on the computer. Let's start with a randomized trial comparing acupuncture, simulated acupuncture, and usual care for chronic low back pain. In the archives of internal medicine, a second or perhaps even third tier journal, but respectable, a solid journeyman of a journal, a Luke Walton kind of journal. It starts with the usual background. Back pain is common, it's expensive, it's refractory to therapy, and patients frequently use acupuncture to treat the problem. They note that medical acupuncturists think it works, which is sort of like letting me know that Midas thinks I need a muffler. Then they note that there have been European studies that have demonstrated that sham acupuncture is not inferior to real acupuncture with low back pain. And then they say, quote, Thus, this trial was designed to address the following questions about the value of acupuncture for chronic low back pain. One, is acupuncture more effective than usual medical care alone? Two, is real acupuncture more effective than simulated, non-insertive acupuncture? Three, is individualized acupuncture more effective than standardized acupuncture? End quote. Good questions. Please note at the beginning of the paper how they have redefined acupuncture as simulated, non-insertive acupuncture. It's not fake acupuncture or sham acupuncture or placebo acupuncture. It is simulated, non-insertive acupuncture. As an AIDS doc, I use simulated and non-insertive in a different context, so this study does lead to particular mental images, but that's just me. They then used electronic records from a West Coast, West Coast? Elma Fudd does his podcast, from a West Coast integrated healthcare system, something like Kaiser, not integrative like in integrative medicine. And they found people who had codes for low back pain of greater than three months duration and no underlying causes like cancer or rheumatoid arthritis, mispronounced arthritis, I believe. What the underlying etiology of the back pain in these patients was not said. It looks like most of them had bad backs for no reason, which is not uncommon. They then sent letters to the patients to ask if they wanted to be in the study, and they interviewed the respondents over the telephone to see if they met criteria. In the end, they ended up enrolling and randomizing 641 patients. As a group, the patients were well-matched, and dropout rate was the same in all groups. Then they were assigned to four groups as follows. One, usual care. Whatever they were doing, they continued it. Or they received acupuncture. Now, participants were assigned to real or simulated acupuncture treatments, were treated twice weekly for three weeks, and then weekly for four weeks for a total of 10 treatments. Participants were asked to wear eye masks and lie prone with their heads in a face cradle so they couldn't see how they were being acupunctured. Then they got individualized acupuncture. Here, they had a diagnostic acupuncturist determine what was needed by standard techniques, as if acupuncture is standardized. And then he would leave, and a therapeutic acupuncturist would come in and put the needles in. One wonders idly if the roles were reversed, if the therapeutic acupuncturist would have picked the same needling sites. Then they could only use points that could be used when the patient was lying in a prone position. That took away at least half a body to needle. So if it was successful, we have learned that for the treatment of low back pain, you do not need to place any needles in the front of the body. They used an average of 11 needles and up to 72 different points. Or they were randomized to standardized acupuncture. Here, 
After the diagnostician came in, made recommendations, the patient had eight needles placed in the same place. They were then twirled at 10 or 20 minutes, as they say to, quote, elicit dekey, which they perceive as a biomechanical response in tissue as it tightens around the inserted needle and constricts its movement, end quote. How were these points chosen? They say, quote, we used a standardized acupuncture prescription considered effective by experts for chronic low back pain. One wonders, that, end quote, one wonders if there's a standardized acupuncture prescription, why they needed to have individualized acupuncture, but that's the mystery of the East. The reference to this statement and how it was derived led me to an article that cost $45 to access, so I have to take their word for it. But as best I can gather, the experts just sort of made it up. Or four, they were randomized to fake acupuncture. Here they use a toothpick. Yes, a toothpick. They don't mention whether it was square or round. And then the acupuncturist mimed using a toothpick, probably wearing white face, and trying to escape from an invisible box. They mined acupuncture, twirling it at 10 and 20 minute intervals, and they discovered that the patients could not tell the difference. So they followed the patients at baseline and at age 26 and 52 weeks. What criteria did they use to see if they got better? They used interviews and self-assessments. Quote, the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire, a reliable, valid, and sensitive measure appropriate for telephone administration. Participants were also asked to rate how bothersome their pain had been during the past week on a scale of 0 to 10, which was extreme bothersomeness. Basically, in this study, if the patient said they were better, they were better. There was no objective endpoint. Now, pain is subjective, but I wish in these studies they had some sort of functional correlation for the pain. Pain, for example, prevents movement. It would have been nice to see if they could walk farther or bend over better or something. Subjective symptoms are both valid and not so valid. I always go back to the Saw Palmetto study for prostatism. They randomized patients to either getting placebo or Saw Palmetto for their prostatism, which usually manifests as increased need to go, decreased flow, and delayed emptying of the bladder. Now, patients on both saw palmetto and placebo thought they were improved, yet when their urine flow was measured, they had no change in the urodynamics. So were they better or not? There was a subjective improvement, but there was not an objective improvement. Were they better? It remains an interesting question in all these types of alternative medicine studies. If the patients are subjectively improved but objectively the same, are they better? Yeah, they are. No, they're not. It kind of depends on what the meaning of is is. When I got post-op morphine, I had less pain and I could do more. I take Motrin before I golf and I hurt less and I swing better, although you would not guess it from my scores. It would be nice if these studies included some functional correlates of decreased pain. But if you say your pain is better, it is. If you say pain is better but your function remains the same, well, maybe not so much. But such is the mystery of pain. What were the results? Everyone improved. Even patients who were in the standard group got better over time. But the three forms of acupuncture were better than standard care. The acupuncture group had less reported pain, better reported function, and less reported medication use reported. Key word. It's not that patients lied, but, you know, they will often tell you what you want to hear, especially in the context of a study. 
it is curious in this study that the costs related to back pain were the same in all groups. One would think that if they had a decrease in their pain, there would be a decrease in the need to seek care for that pain. A true decrease in medication use would manifest as a decrease in prescriptions and decreased costs. This suggests that although there was a reported decrease in pain, it did not correlate with function. But again, the mystery of pain. They also estimated that in the real world, the acupuncture would have cost between $800 and $1,200, which is not an insignificant chunk of change. For side effects, while there were no dropouts from adverse reactions in the sham group, though there were dropouts due to adverse reactions in the acupuncture group, there were no adverse reactions in fake acupuncture, but 11 in the real group, and it was mostly pain. One patient had severe pain for more than a month after the needling, and I would not be surprised if the therapist hit a nerve or caused some other trauma. Sticking needles in people is not a completely safe thing to do. My take? If you're going to have acupuncture, have sham acupuncture. It works just as well and has no side effects. I would also say that acupuncture doesn't work for low back pain. What do the authors say? Quote, Our trial extends the findings from these studies by demonstrating that needle insertion is not necessary to achieve therapeutic benefits and by measuring longer-term outcomes. Collectively, these recent trials provide strong and consistent evidence that real acupuncture needling using the Chinese meridian system is no more effective for chronic back pain than various purported forms of sham acupuncture. I like that. Purported. It's not sham. It's real acupuncture. It's just purported to be sham. It's the real deal. To continue the quote, however, both real and sham acupuncture appear superior to usual care. Possible explanations for these findings include the following. One, superficial acupuncture point stimulation directly stimulates physiological processes that ultimately lead to improved pain and function. Or two, participants improve function resulting from nonspecific effects such as therapist's conviction, patient's enthusiasm, or receiving a treatment believed to be helpful. In other words, you either have an effect or it's placebo, but they can't bring themselves to use the word placebo. It is very important to touch people. It is therapeutic. Back pain visits where the doctor touches the patients have better outcomes than those that don't. But in deference to a million years of evolution, we do not attempt to pick fleas off him. Earthmen are not proud of their ancestors and never invite them round to dinner. But gee, really, you think a placebo effect? Now, they cannot bring themselves to say placebo, but that's essentially what this study showed, patients convincing themselves that they were a wee bit better. And that, most of the time, is what the placebo effect is in regards to pain. But it's all the acupuncture, damn it, and it works as long as we define acupuncture as anything that defines acupuncture, like twirling toothpicks on people's skin. Sad, really. What is funny is that many media outlets touted the article as showing that acupuncture works, calling toothpick twirling acupuncture. For example, quote, Acupuncture research keeps showing that ancient practice relieves pain, and yet scientists become more and more mystified by how it works. A recent study found acupuncture to be more effective for back pain than standard treatments, regardless of whether or not the patient got poked with needles or toothpicks. Or ABC News. Quote, acupuncture brought more relief to people with back pain than standard treatments, whether it was done with a toothpick or a real needle, U.S. researchers said today. 
in a study that raises new questions about how acupuncture works. End quote. Hey, Zeus, this does not raise any questions about how acupuncture works. Let's go to an alternative universe. I have a nostrum. I think it relieves pain, like, say, back pain. I give you the nostrum mixed in water. I give you a placebo pill mixed in water. I give you a glass of water. And then I compare all three to doing nothing. All three interventions are better than nothing, but everybody gets better nonetheless. What would you say about the water? That it is as effective as the therapy? Well, you would if you're a homeopath. Or that none of them are effective for back pain. I think this study shows pretty convincingly that acupuncture does nothing for back pain and it has risks. It is interesting that they called it safe as only one patient had a severe complication, but for a therapy that does nothing, that does not work, any complication is one too many. In medicine, you always have to weigh the risks and benefits of everything you do. In this case, no benefit should equal no risk. If your hospital offers acupuncture, it's an interesting ethical question. Since sham acupuncture is equivalent to, if not better than, real acupuncture and has less side effects, can the use of acupuncture be ethically justified? This study was funded by the Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, the NCCAM. No significant conflicts of interests outside of free acupuncture needles were provided in the study. Who provided the toothpicks is not mentioned, and we all know the inordinate influence of the toothpick industrial complex on medical care. I am deeply worried that the toothpick manufacturers of America are deep into the acupuncture community. Now, an interesting clinical trial for acupuncture, I think, would have four wings in it. They would get real acupuncture and told they were getting real acupuncture. They get real acupuncture and told they were getting fake acupuncture. They get fake acupuncture and told they were getting real acupuncture. They get fake acupuncture and told they were getting fake acupuncture. What do you think would happen? I would predict that the groups who were told they were getting acupuncture would have improvement and the groups who were told they were getting nothing would not. I think the data is clear. Acupuncture is not effective for pain. Next up, a systemic review from Spine, a rather solid journal for those of you who are interested in backs. I know, systemic review. I sigh every time I read one. And I have done a podcast on the problematic nature of meta-analyses and systemic reviews. I still think they are most helpful if they support your previously held conviction and less helpful if they contradict your pre-held beliefs. For the irony impaired, that was a sarcastic comment. There is an ongoing debate over on the Science-Based Medicine blog over the safety of chiropractic. So the question is, is applying roughly the equivalent force of a hanging to the back safe? What do you think? So why do a systemic review? I'll quote here from the paper. Quote, because it does not constitute a pharmacologic intervention and is considered a non-conventional therapy, it has been subjected to formal efficacy and safety evaluations demanded by national drug agencies. Without a robust demonstration of effectiveness and a disproportional growth of popularity, the evaluation of the safety profile gains more relevance. 
reinforcing this need, the literature reports multiple cases of patients who experience serious adverse neurologic events after chiropractic manipulations. The aim of this systemic review was to identify and appraise all studies specifically designed to evaluate safety data concerning adverse events associated with chiropractic practice. They found, wandering through the medical literature, 46 studies. And let's say that the chiropractic literature is not thrilling, but they did manage to find one randomized controlled trial, two case control studies, six prospective studies, 12 surveys, three retrospective studies, and 115 case reports that address the complications from chiropractic. It is really worth a read as they evaluate each study and present a damning pile of data to suggest that chiropractic is potentially harmful. As they say, the heterogeneity of the studies prevented a formal meta-analysis, but they concluded, again, in what's worth quoting at length, quote, the remarkable popularity of spinal manipulation is contrasted by a disappointing lack of well-conducted studies to assess efficacy. Accepting that its efficacy for treatment of multiple indications is unknown, the aspects of safety gain extreme relevancy. Here comes the numbers. Adverse reactions are frequent after spinal manipulation, ranging from 33 to 60.9%, mostly increased pain or stiffness. However, the frequency of serious adverse events is not established, varying between five strokes per 100,000 manipulations, that's pretty good, 1.46 serious events per 10 million manipulations, and 2.68 deaths per 10 million manipulations, with stroke being the most frequent. Safety in chiropractic manipulation is far from being achieved. End quote. No kidding. Now, these events are rare. You know, 2.6 and 10 million manipulations, the average chiropractor is not going to see a stroke in his career. But it's always the same ethical question. Given that chiropractic has not been consistently shown to be superior for any treatment, including low back pain, can one in good conscience recommend a riskier therapy that has safer equivalents? And let's compare and contrast. In June of 1999, the FDA got rid of Trovan. Trovan is a quinolone antibiotic related to Cipra floxacin. That's because it had been, quote, strongly associated, end quote, with a mere 14 cases of acute liver failure and six deaths. And they had had about 100 case reports of liver problems in patients taking trovafloxacin. This was during a time when about 300,000 patients per month were getting Trovan. That is very few side effects on a lot of people at a rate probably less than chiropractic. And yet the FDA pulled the med. Chiropractors are fortunate indeed that they are not subject to regulation as we yank drugs for far less side effects, even when they are very effective in therapy. Trovafloxacin was a great drug. I might say that something is rotten in Denmark, but I have been using Zycam and I now have anosmia. It's the old joke. How do you stop a fish from smelling? Give it Zycam. But double standard for scams? Perish the thought, or in this case, perish the patient. And now for something completely different. You're not going to believe this, but I'm actually going to talk about a complementary and alternative therapy that works. 
This is like fishing and catching a coelacanth. Now, not all alternative therapies can be dismissed out of hand. Well, homeopathy, yeah. There are as few things as stupid as homeopathy. Acupuncture and chiropractic, well, you know, depending on the use, like pain, you can't dismiss them out of hand. You can, for, say, the treatment of asthma or any infection, but some of the uses of those therapies require studies to prove or disprove efficacy. And then we have herbal therapies, which in particular cannot be dismissed out of hand, as one never really knows until you look whether or not there's an active ingredient present in the herb that will have an effect. It's always annoying that herbal therapies get a buy, a pass, on actually having to demonstrate first that they have biologically active ingredients in them, and instead jump straight to clinical studies based on the endless totality of unreliable anecdotes of efficacy. But you never know when the next herb tried will have a taxol in it or a new antibiotic. Now, hypercholesterolemia is a problem in our supersized culture. I don't worry about it myself. Cholesterol is a testosterone precursor, so I used guided energy to drive my cholesterol down the testosterone pathway rather than the atherogenic pathway. And I have the bald head and the tendency towards excessive violence to prove it. The best drugs to treat hypercholesterolemia are statins. But there's a problem. Some of them are limited by the fact that some patients develop myositis or muscle pain. So then what do you do? Well, if you ferment rice, regular old rice, with the mold Monascus purpurus, you think it's an infectious disease doc, I know how to pronounce these out of the box, I think I pronounce it right, the rice turns a purple-red color. It also contains significant qualities of an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, lovastatin. Lovastatin is also known as mavinolin, which is a naturally occurring statin. It is a metabolic intermediate in synthetic pathways of many molds, and in fact was first noted in Aspergillus terris. It can be found in Aspergillus, which is a known pathologic mold. It's the stuff that grows green on your cheese, and so perhaps, rather than cutting it off, I should just eat the green mold on the cheese and help lower the cholesterol that I find in my Swiss. Hmm, nah, probably not a good idea. But there have been a few studies to show that red yeast rice decreases LDL cholesterol, which it should do because it contains lovastatin. And some have suggested its effects are greater than lovastatin alone, which should be the case because it's an ancient Chinese herbal remedies, and those ancient Chinese had access to knowledge lost to us modern scientists. So they decided to study it in this in the Annals of Internal Medicine, one of the premier journals for internal medicine. They had 61 patients who were intolerant to statins due to muscle aches, and they randomized them to 1,800 milligrams twice a day of red yeast rice, or placebo, and they also had to suffer through, well, participate in a lifestyle modification course, like I'm going to give up my ice cream. They estimated that the patients were getting about 6 milligrams of lovastatin in the red yeast rice, which is about a third of the standard dose. They then analyzed the yeast, and they found that there was a hodgepodge of nine lovastatin-related compounds, which may have helped contribute to the efficacy of the red yeast rice. Lovastatin is myconolin K. So they looked at the rice, and they found it contained myconolin J, myconolin XA, KA, 
L-A-X-L-M dihydromonocolon K and a large special aliquot of kiwi dong. Not really. But it worked. And I'll quote from the article. Quote, LDL cholesterol decreased by 1.1 millimoles per liter, 43 milligrams per deciliter from baseline, and by 35 milligrams per deciliter at week 24. The placebo group fell much less, 11 milligrams per deciliter at week 12 and 15 milligrams per deciliter at week 24. The LDL was also lower in the red yeast rice group than compared to placebo. And the most interesting thing is, despite the fact they were getting lovastatin, they did not get myalgias. Now, this may have been due to the lower dose, or perhaps it was the other compounds in the rice. It is interesting that they note that there is a brand of red yeast rice that has higher levels of lovastatin in it, and it has more pronounced effects on lowering the cholesterol. Whether it would protect against the myositis is unknown. So the use of this herbal-slash-natural product is on its way to validation, and perhaps there is more to be discovered in the components of red yeast rice to aid in the treatment of hypercholesterolemia. What was unique about this substance compared to other herbal preparations that have been studied, such as echinacea or sal palmetto, is that this actually had components in it that had a biological, biochemical reason to have efficacy in the treatment of the disease. And this study was nice in that it raises more questions than it answered, which most good clinical trials do. How well would it work without lifestyle interventions? How would red rice yeast compare to low-dose statins? Are there components in the red yeast rice besides Kidong, oh, I mean Lovastatin, that would help lower cholesterol and protect against myalgias? Why is it not called red mold rice, since it's a mold? And can you eat red yeast rice twice a day for the rest of your life and not get sick of it. Why, oh why, could it not be peanut butter instead? I've estimated that I've eaten over 50,000 peanut butter sandwiches in my life. And the NCCAM can't even take credit for funding it. This was paid for by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So what have we learned? Acupuncture is dead. Chiropractic can kill you. Red yeast rice may save your life. Candy is dandy, liquor is quicker. Have reliance on science. See you in Vegas, where I expect each and every one of you to buy me a pint of beer or an ice-cold apple teeny, or at least tell me how good you think my poetry is. So that's the end of QuackCast 33, brought to you as a side project of Pusware.com, where you will find the CME-accredited Puscasts, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases. Also remember me on the Science-Based Medicine blog, where I write twice a month, and Rubor Dolor Kalor Tumor over on Medscape, where I write four or five times a week on infectious diseases. This has been copyright 2009 under the Creative Commons license. References are on the show notes and are found at quackcast.com, as well as the podcasts themselves. Send your hate mail and spam and questions to knowitall at quackcat.com. I doubt I will ever answer your emails. I look at my email list and just get depressed and move on to something else. Mostly because I'm a very slow writer. But I read each and every one of them. Don't forget to go to iTunes and write a glowing review of this podcast. And finally, 
The music is by my son when he was 12, when he was improvising on the guitar. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to go have a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs>